Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Colette, Tom and Paul here to take you through the latest Media Law headlines. We've got interviews from footballer Delhi Alley, updates on the UK Cabinet Office's request to defend its position on WhatsApp messages and Labour announcements with regard to the repeal of Section 40 of the Crime and Court Act. But I want to start with Hugh Edwards, who was named as the BBC presenter accused of paying a teenager for sexually explicit photographs last week. Edwards was named by his wife in a statement in which she said that he is now being treated in hospital for his mental health. The Metropolitan Police and the South Wales Police have found no information to indicate any criminal offences were committed. The Sun, the publisher that broke the story, said in a statement on the 12th of July 2023 that at no point in its original front page story did it allege criminality had occurred. The Sun is now facing criticism for its handling of the story, in particular its failure to publish the young person's denial of any criminality before it published its initial story. There are I mean, lots to dissect here with uh, regards to the, journal, the quality of the journalism um, and also any potential legal claims that come forward. Um, should we start with maybe what Edward's position could be if he wanted to bring a claim? What would be his routes to to redress in this situation? Yeah, sure. Um, so I want to talk about the possibility for a claim in libel. Um, the Sun has been rowing back frantically in recent days and trying to uh, convince the world it never ever alleged any potential criminality on the part of Hugh Edwards in its original story. And that is frankly bunk. Uh, It absolutely alleged criminality. It's perfectly clear on the face of the article, indeed in its headline. Um, The headline, which read, top BBC star who, quote, paid child for sex pictures, quote, could be charged by cops and face years in prison, expert says. Now, that was published in The Sun. It's still available online. I know I downloaded it this morning. Um, So it's absolutely clear there's an allegation of uh, illegal activity. And if you go into the article, the allegation is repeated. And then there's a very substantial section where an expert talks through the precise piece of legislation that uh, criminalizes the acquisition of indecent pictures of children, which is precisely what the allegation is. Now, having made such an allegation, the obstacle to a defamation claim is, does the story identify the claimant? Is Hugh Edwards identified by the statement that the son has put out? And I would say, given that the online hive mind of social media quickly fastened on Edwards as the target of most of its opprobrium, notwithstanding that some other BBC celebrities were, for a brief period, uh, under suspicion as well, it seems it was entirely possible by a process of what we often call jigsaw identification to identify Edwards. Um, And this is largely down to what the uh, teenager's mother had said uh, in the interview given to The Sun the text of which was published in the article, um, where uh, the mother talked about seeing the celebrity on the television after having made a report to the BBC at a particular point in the month of May. Well, then 
when you try to work out, as many people did, who is paid enough by the BBC to afford £35,000 in ready cash to hand to uh, uh, someone for uh, what the Sun calls sordid pictures, and who has been on television in a regular slot since the middle of May, well, then that rules out a lot of people. Um, and very quickly, the finger of suspicion can be pointed at Edwards. I think, and this is my opinion, based on what I know of the way that the Sun and other similar tabloids have operated in recent years, I think the Sun knew full well what it was doing and that it was perfectly possible to identify Hugh Edwards by that process of jigsaw identification. I would be astonished if whomever was doing the libel reading for the Sun that day didn't point it out, for starters, but I think the editorial staff knew precisely what they were doing. I can't prove that. That's just my suspicion and my opinion based on what I know of uh, the Sun. If Edwards can convince a court that the statement indeed referred to him, then it's a slam dunk that this statement is defamatory. Um, I think it rises to the level of the most serious of the chase level meanings, uh, an imputation of guilt. Um, but at the very least, it rises to uh, one of the chase level meanings, uh, because the lowest of those is the suggestion that there are reasonable grounds to investigate whether uh, something uh, is amiss. And, def- uh, and that is defamatory. So um, I think that there is a potential libel case here that only really turns on the question of whether the statement identifies uh, the claimant. Um, Paul, do you want to say something about privacy? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Um, so I'm going to start, rather than start from the beginning, I'm going to start at the end. And I'm going to start today, in fact, because there was a piece by Adam Bolton in the Daily Mail. Um now, the reason I mention this piece is because Bolton, uh, who is a journalist himself, has attacked those that have attacked the Sun. And he draws to special attention the campaign group known as Hacked Off, uh, of which I, of course, am a director. And he attacks my fellow director, Jackie Hames, for speaking on behalf of uh, victims of press abuse. And um, Jackie appeared on Newsnight in which she accused the son of using its, quote, unaccountable power quotes to invade Edward's privacy. And she also further accused the son for having failed in its uh, various duties and responsibilities by forgetting that there were, quote, real people involved in the story, quotes. Now, Bolton, for reasons known only unto himself, has decided not only to go on the offensive uh, in standing up for the sun in these circumstances, perhaps because of some sort of misguided sense of loyalty to his profession, um, but what makes it even more mysterious is that uh, Bolton himself was uh, the victim of unwanted press attention when his own marriage broke up several years ago and he was at the centre of a small uh, media storm uh, in which the Sunday newspapers, including the Mail on Sunday, uh, chose to uh, write about him. 
So here is uh, Bolton, who claims to sympathise with Edwards and his family, but actually uses this as an opportunity to double down on the Sun's position and so provide yet more pressure upon both the BBC uh, and Edwards himself in uh, concerning the circumstances of this story. Now, the BBC, it is important to stress, was in an invidious position when this story came to light. We know that the tabloid press has a pronounced anti-BBC agenda. And as a partisan organisation, part of the partisan press, it is, of course, entitled to pursue its own worldview, which it assumes its readers share. And that worldview is uh, set against the BBC, against any symbols of liberalism and the left. And it is also a worldview that takes adultery to be a wrong in any form, uh, at any time. So um, Bolton's complaints against uh, Hacked Off are uh, surprising, uh, but not unusual. He says that Hacked Off were bl- inverted, com- uh, sorry, he says that Hacked Off, and this is a quote, uh, were blinded and are blinded by a searing hatred for Fleet Street uh, and particularly tabloids. But he accuses us of missing the point. Uh, He says that we are wrong to suggest the sun is not accountable, um, but that the press had a duty to report on this matter. Now, as regular listeners know, I love this word duty when it's applied in relation to the British press. It's such a wonderful term, isn't it? It's a moral apologia. It's a term that suggests no moral culpability whatsoever for any kind of privacy invasion. But it's a word that when we try to use it, we who are not on uh, and within the camp of the brass, when we try to use it, uh, that term is seen to be hostile and constraining and anti-freedom. So if there's a duty to report on this story, then there is a duty to report on all stories that are in the public interest. And that would include a duty to report on Boris Johnson's missing telephone. But the Boris Johnson missing telephone story didn't get that much coverage because instead the front page was devoted to Hugh Edwards. If there's a duty to act in the public interest, then why isn't isn't the climate crisis on pages 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way up to the end of the newspaper, every single day, every single newspaper, because the only pressing issue that this world faces is how we will handle the climate crisis. And the reason why it's not there, of course, is that the word duty is a misnomer in this context. Because when we try to suggest that certain stories should attract specific attention by the popular press, we're reminded of press freedom. So then the press hides behind this word freedom. Well, they have freedom to do this and freedom to do that. What we have, as Tom's already alluded to here, is a choice. The Sun wasn't obliged to publish this story. It chose to publish this story. It chose to publish this story in pursuit of its own partisan agenda. It chose to publish this story for the clickbait, for the attention that it would give it. 
And in that sense, the story has been incredibly successful for The Sun and most of the tabloid industry, because for the past week and a half, all we've talked about is Hugh Edwards and no one else. We're not talking about the climate crisis. We're not talking about the climate. We're not talking about the crisis in government. We're not talking about these awful Tories. We're not talking about demanding a general election. We're not talking about pay for nurses. We're not talking about pay for doctors. I could go on and on and on about the things that we're not talking about. Now, let me return to the question of privacy. Was this, is this an invasion of privacy? Well, clearly it is. Is the Sun responsible for it? Well, that's where it becomes more interesting. Because the Sun has set off, as it knew it would, has set off Twitter, in particular, into a frenzy drawing out all the TikTok investigators, drawing out all those who love a good mystery to try and work out who this mystery person was. And in doing so, created unbearable conditions for any human being to have to live through. We're not just talking about the fervent imagination of those on Twitter. We're not just talking about poor Jeremy Vine, who was accused of being a paedophile. What we're talking about here is a an industry that we know will have been camped outside Hugh Edwards' house, demanding a quote, wanting a quote, wanting to get their side of the story, trying to encourage Hugh Edwards to put his side, etc., etc. The man is now in hospital, having suffered a chronic breakdown. Are we all happy? And this is the problem with the sun, and this is why people like Adam Bolton should really think about what it is they're saying when they try and defend the sun. And especially when they have the audacity to suggest that people leave the sun alone as if the sun needs our protection. And my favourite line in Bolton's diatribe comes right at the very end. Right at the very end, the very last sentence. This is a quote. We do not yet know what happened in Hugh's case. Let me repeat that. We do not yet know what happened in Hugh's case. Now, the reason why that's so significant, if it doesn't speak for itself, is because The Sun, in publishing this story, which is now had to backtrack on several times and readjust, doesn't actually know what it is it's complaining about. We know that Hugh Edwards has done something, inverted commas, awful. We know that, but we don't know what. Is this a legal wrong? Well, it's not a criminal matter, but Bolton reminds us that the police don't always get things right. So the fact the police aren't interested in investigating what has happened does not of itself mean, in Bolton's words, there is no evidence of criminal behaviour. Because that assessment was based only on the information available. I mean, that of itself is incredible that Bolton should say that. But what does seem to have happened is that there is some kind of moral wrong on the part of Edwards. He has done something that the readers, the sensitive readers, the Puritan readers of the Sun find awful, find immoral. And that demands, he says, that there should be questions because those that work at the BBC have to hold themselves in a particular light and they have to have standards of propriety. Um. The question, though, that and the issue that people like Bolton just don't understand is the issue of proportionality. 
clearly there has been an egregious invasion of one person's privacy in circumstances where the original allegation seems to have no merit. The source that was used was a single source. It was the word of a family in circumstances where the alleged victim herself denied, dismissed the original allegation as nonsense. Is the public interest, whatever that public interest may be, of such importance that it justifies the horrendous consequences that have happened? And the answer to that is surely not. But we will only know that once certain procedures have been followed. Point number one, proper criminal investigation. Point number two, a proper investigation by the BBC itself. And what we have in these circumstances is a chronic prejudgment of the outcome. The case has already been decided in the court of public opinion and Hugh Edwards is guilty. We have now no way of knowing what it is that Edwards has done because the hysteria has reached such a level and the sun has battened down the hatches to such a degree that in order for us to probably know in a proportionate way, what is wrong or not, would require us to erase our own memories of the last week. So the answer to the question that uh, Adam Bolton poses, should the sun be demonised for bringing these questions to light, is yes. It is emphatically yes. The sun is not conducting any sort of public interest. Journalism here is not judging the procedures of institutions of the state, be that the police or the BBC, it is simply generating clickbait for its own advancement. And that is pretty horrific. I think Paul's absolutely right in that he points out that there is doctrinally an interesting question here when it comes to the application of privacy law, in that the Sun seems to have set off a chain reaction on social media using its knowledge of how the Twitterati will react to do the dirtiest work for it. So it makes an allegation against somebody it does not name, and then it waits for the Twitter storm to identify and castigate and condemn in the court of public opinion. And so you very quickly get the questions flying around social media asking who is the BBC nonce, and then various others get uh, fingers pointed at them and eventually uh, the target lands on Hugh Edwards firmly. Um, I think the courts would still hold the son responsible for this. And my reason for thinking that is that the courts said quite, the Supreme Court said, I think quite clearly in PJS, that where a media frenzy inevitably follows publicity of a single event, the publisher of that single event statement can be held responsible for the media frenzy that results. Um, it goes beyond the factual matrix of PJS, but I don't think it goes beyond the principle that the Supreme Court had in mind at the time. Of course, that's the sort of thing that can be decided probably only by the Supreme Court again. So if this does become a piece of litigation, I think it's got a likelihood of becoming one in uh, defamation if Hugh Edwards feels so inclined 
uh, once he recovers sufficiently uh, to uh, leave hospital and think about what to do about his reputation. Uh, I think it could be a, a defamation claim. I think they could equally be a privacy claim. So I'm with Paul on that. Um, and it remains to be seen what happens. It's relevant also to talk about a different incident that occurred in the last few days when we're talking about um, the way that the tabloid press behaved, because I don't think the Edwards case should ever be looked at in isolation. It's not an isolated incident. It's just the most high profile one that's distracted us all probably from Thursday's by-elections in the last 10 days. Um, and that is the way that the tabloid press treated the former England midfielder, uh, Delhi Alley. Now Delhi Alley, uh, as is now well known, has um, given an interview to Gary Neville's podcast um, in which he details abuse that he suffered as a child, um, his struggles uh, with addiction in more recent years, uh, and revealed that he had in the last few months been receiving treatment for sleeping pill addiction in a rehab facility. Now, he also makes clear that he didn't really want to come out and do the podcast interview. And the reason he felt compelled to do so is that tabloid journalists had been beating a path to uh, the door of his agency and his football club, having found out that he was in rehab, saying, we know where he is, and we're going to run a story about it unless you tell us what's going on. And presumably you give us access to Delhi Alley. So what did he do? He came out and got ahead of the story. Um, but this is another instance of tabloid journalists seeing a vulnerable person and using them for clickbait. And Edwards is no different. The tabloids, you know, the Sun knew it was Edwards that was alleged, you know, to, to be the person behind this. It chose not to publish the name, but it knows also that Hugh Edwards has a well-publicized history of mental illness, particularly that he has struggled mm. with depression in recent years, because that is something that he has spoken about. They see Edwards, they see a vulnerable target, and Paul is right. This is an issue of proportionality. They don't seem to have thought, is it proportionate to some, we don't even know exactly what the offense is that they, they, they think he was committed? Is it legal? Is it moral? And the same with Delhi Alley. What is it that he has done that deserves him being put through the ringer? He's been the victim of yeah. abuse as a child. He's struggled to cope with that trauma as an adult. He's appeared numerous times for England and top flight clubs and been a super professional for most of that time. What exactly is it he's supposed to have done? And, and here we, well, there's two points that come from this. One is the uh, psychology in a way. There's an important psych, uh, psychological aspect to both these cases involving Dali Ali and Hugh Edwards. And it says something about uh, the privacy dynamic as compared to the defamation dynamic. Um, if, uh, if we think of the, some of the most horrendous slurs that can be put to a, a person, let's say they're accused of being a paedophile, or there is a rush, there is a literal rush to go to court to correct the record, the public record, by the defamed person, um, they will be scrambling to get to court to deny what has been said about them. But in privacy, the dynamic is different because often what is being reported is not false, it is true. 
And it is often uh, an allegation that has and utilizes uh, the language of shame. And so for the uh, individual affected to complain in a courtroom requires them to relive in some detail, not only what was said about them, but also what, what they did in circumstances where they probably do feel ashamed anyway, even without the press jumping on the bandwagon to castigate them. Um, and I think the Hugh Edwards case and the Dali Alley case as well, highlights issues around mental illness and the preparedness of an individual to stand up for themselves, their ability to stand up for themselves in a courtroom in those circumstances. Now, here we should have a regulatory opportunity, that is to say, uh, an opportunity for a regulator to take a case through its own processes on behalf of an individual who clearly has been wronged, where clearly there is a privacy issue whether it's a justified invasion of privacy or not. But again, we see the regulatory failure here because one voice that has been noticeably silent this week is that of IPSO. Now, IPSO regulates the sun um, and uh, may, well be, may well be the regulator that regulates the journalists who have been clamouring to get hold of Delhi Alley. Um, Tom mentioned that they had approached... Um, the agencies uh, that um, represent Ali were also told, though, by the man himself that his family was contacted. And there are rules that govern uh, the not only what can be published, the content of newspapers, but also the conduct of journalists. But Ipso is not proactive. It will not uh, regulate of its own volition even though it has the power to it will only respond to a complaint which again requires an individual to have the mental fortitude to initiate a complaint and go through that whole rigmarole can i mention one other person who i think has been overlooked somewhat in the furore over the last few days in the headwoods case and that is the young person the young person who made a statement within mm. a couple of days through legal representatives saying that the Sun story was rubbish uh, and there was no illegal activity going on whatsoever. Now, this person has not been named either, and obviously efforts have been made to keep their identity relatively quiet, including not identifying by name the parents, although uh, I see uh, reports that the parents have been uh, offered substantial sums of money to give TV interviews, at which point, of course, the identity of the young person will become uh, very much more apparent, particularly to anyone who knows the parents. Um, but A, it is surely likely that there are some within the immediate circle of friends uh, of this individual who will uh, recognize what is going on. And also simply that making these allegations to the extent that they're true and indeed to the extent that they are false may be causing significant distress. We don't know um, what the mental health situation of this individual is other than that they are alleged to be a crack cocaine addict. Um, whether we believe this to be accurate or not is beside the point. You have a young person who ha is on the other side of having been alleged to be uh, selling sex pictures for money. And that is undoubtedly the sort of thing that will cause uh, distress. And when uh, distress is caused, um, then you have a problem with an Article 8 problem. You have a privacy problem. 
um, because it impugns the psychological integrity of the individual. Um, and so I think th this person, you know, whether they actually are likely to meet all the doctrinal requirements for a, a, a privacy claim in the court uh, is kind of beside the point. They have privacy interests here uh, that have been ridden roughshod over. Yeah, and the other the other point that I think does leap out from this is the institutional context and the sensitivities there, because the BBC is bound to be on the back foot here for two reasons. One is uh, the naming of an individual in circumstances where they're under suspicion by uh, the police. So uh, regular listeners know that um, the BBC found itself on the wrong end of the Richard and BBC judgment, uh, which has subsequently been upheld in ZXC and Bloomberg. Different circumstances, slightly different facts, but more or less the same principle. Uh, that if you name uh, an individual, um, you are interfering with uh, privacy rights and that's a question of justification. Okay, I'm not about to launch into a discussion of Richard and BBC. We've done that to, get to death. But the other aspect here, of course, that the BBC will be very sensitive about is the Jimmy Savile dimension that, you know, Jimmy Savile and others were said to have been sheltered by the BBC in circumstances where the BBC and others knew that they were committing these heinous criminal acts. But of course, the other people that knew about the existence of Savile's uh, insidious activities were journalists themselves. Um, it was well known on Fleet Street, we're told now, that everyone knew that Savile was a paedophile. But it wasn't reported. And why wasn't it reported? Because newspapers were scared of defamation. And we're told that at least one journalist had built up a dossier over the years and was going to publish, but his editor prevented him, and so he couldn't, he couldn't publish his exclusive. And so he left the matter there. Now, if, uh, if the BBC or any other institution, be that the press or anyone else, knows of known paedophile activity amongst its ranks, it should re be reporting that matter to the police. The police are the people that, at the first instance, need to regulate criminal activity and bring people to account, including paedophiles or anyone else. So the suggestion here, of course, as Tom's already said, was the allegation of criminal wrongdoing. And we come back to Bolton. Well, the press have a duty to report. Well, they might have a duty to report, but only in circumstances where they are keeping a check on power. You can't keep a check on power if you're not actually letting power go through its processes. So if the Sun had evidence that criminal wrongs were taking place here of paedophilia or anything else, uh, duress, for example, they should have passed it on to the police. But journalists don't do that because there's no profit motive in that. They all want their exclusive. So once again, the question swings back round to just swings back round to justice. Justice in these circumstances. Justice is in upholding the law us all living by the rule of law that no one is above the law whether they work for the bbc or they work for fleet street but look the law can only be served by those processes taking place in the first place and newspapers as they're well aware have been told on numerous occasions that where there's criminal activity at stake 
they mustn't jump the gun by prejudicing the fairness of any future trial. And the press have been culpable of just this in the case of Christopher Jeffries and others. They have created such a moral panic over Hugh Edwards' behaviour that if he has engaged in criminal activity, we're going to have a serious problem of trying to find jurors who are sufficiently unaffected by this incessant reporting that they'll be able to satisfy the demands placed on them by the law in a fair way. I want to link all of these uh, topics back to some of the regulatory news that we have from the last week, in particular, the online safety bills back in the House of Lords and the question around the journalistic exemption is being discussed. And also as well, Labour's commitments to enacting Section 40 of the Crime and Courts Act 2013, the rule designed to enable cost-effective mediation to resolve libel claims for news publishers who sign up to a government-backed regulator. Uh, perhaps we start with the online safety bill and it making new rounds in the in the House of Lords. Yes, so um, the online safety bill, as we know, contains an exemption um, for journalists. And of course, the question uh, arises as to who would be covered uh, by, by this exemption or, or what would be covered. Um, and the, the reason why... Uh, anyone should should have an exemption uh, in these circumstances well the sort of rationale of the online safety bill of course is that journalists are already regulated um, through their own regulatory bodies so the BBC through Ofcom for example and so there's a sense uh, in the rationale of not wanting to double account for the regulatory process that is to say that uh, individuals shouldn't be regulated first through uh, the online safety uh, bill duty holders like twitter or whatever and then again through through ofcom well that's fine in respect of broadcast journalism but it's not quite as satisfactory for the printed press which as we have seen uh, aren't under any obligation to be part of a regulatory scheme Newspapers can choose whether to be regulated or not. So, The Guardian, The Independent, The Financial Times are not regulated by an independent body. Um, so there is a there is a problem there, and even though even those are uh, there's a real issue here about the extent to which Ipso can count as a proper regulatory body given that IPSO itself is not in charge of, does not control the code of conducts that journalists are expected to follow. Um, the code of conduct is actually drawn up by a separate body that does represent major industry interests. Uh, so that's why this provision has been debated again in the House of Lords. Uh, and the debate is fascinating, but of course it all comes back to a particular issue which is the hold that the press has over government not helped by the fact that several notable figures in the press industry are themselves members of the House of Lords. So it just reminds us of the nonsense of uh, the debates 12 years ago now where David Cameron talked about crossing the Rubicon uh, as a bad thing to do, that uh, state regulation or press regulation on a mandatory basis would 
uh, allow politicians to control press regulation. And the irony is that IPSO is actually controlled by politicians. There is uh, the chair, for example, of IPSO is Lord Fawkes, uh, who is a member of the House of Lords. As to Labour's commitment to Section 40, I mean, Section 40 has a, has a checkered history. It's probably got the most checkered history of a provision that actually isn't in force of any in the history of law in this country. It's a complica- complex provision that is designed to safeguard journalistic interests. Because if you are part of a recognised regulator and you are sued in circumstances where the claimant hasn't gone through the regulator first, hasn't taken advantage of the regulator's arbitration scheme, you will not be liable for costs at all. But that point never gets mentioned in the Section 40 debate. It is also much maligned because journalists like to forget and mislead by saying that newspapers who sit outside the regulatory scheme would always have to pay for their opponent's side, even if they were successful. And that is just a lie. Section 40 allows a judge to disregard the presumption in circumstances where the public interest demands it. So Section 40 is not, never would have been as draconian as the press like to presume. One thing I want to address is something that came up in our earlier conversation uh, with relation to Jeremy Vine. There was an accusation on Twitter that he was the BBC presenter who'd paid money for in exchange for sexual pictures. A man from Warwickshire, Andy Plume, agreed to pay £1,000 to a charity uh, and apologised to Jeremy Vine uh, for making that accusation on Twitter. And so th- that matter has resolved, that was resolved over the weekend. I imagine there might be a few more of those in the pipeline um, in part of the fallout of last week's for I should think so too, and it's very... Uh, presenter. I, I think asking only for a donation of £1,000 to charity and no damages, um, it's remarkably generous. Uh, Jeremy Vine is clearly in a very forgiving mood, um, given the an allegation of that level of seriousness um, published to that many people on Twitter, and which set off a degree of chain reaction in itself, um, such that he uh, himself didn't feel terribly safe going out in public um, uh, during the days when he remained actively under suspicion. Um, were that to find itself in court, he would be looking at an awful lot more than a thousand pounds in damages. Uh, so, yeah, this is generous in extremis from uh, Jeremy Vine, but probably appropriate in the interests of allowing everyone to move on. Um, it probably sends enough of a message to the average individual uh, without crippling them and, 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 and making them feel a, a degree of hatred. But I mean, people out there should be under no illusions whatsoever. A thousand pounds could well have been the least of this person's uh, financial difficulties. It could easily have been a hundred times that. Although I imagine now that that we have got clarity as to who the person is, any uh, court case would also have to take that into account, is that his reputation is no longer 
um, as damaged as it could have been during those during those three days. Yes, yes, you'd be looking at an award for the point at which there was that level mm. of suspicion. Absolutely. Yeah. The final thing I want to mention today is uh, just briefly that the UK Cabinet Office has been ordered to hand over WhatsApp messages concerning the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic to the public inquiry following the High Court's rejection of their challenge. The High Court held that the request for documents by public inquiries were bound to lead to the inclusion of some irrelevant material, but that did not make the request unlawful. The government has said that it would comply with the decision. All I'll say is that this was an, it was the most obvious outcome to a piece of litigation I've seen in a very long time. I don't think you need a law degree to understand the proposition that where an inquiry has been given broad powers to get to the truth of what happened, it is entitled to make the decision as to what evidence is relevant to those inquiries. Um, and it is not for the government to mark its own homework and say, oh, this bit's relevant and this bit isn't In as you work out what we did. Um, and the court has simply upheld that. Uh, it's, it's, it's not often where, uh, it, you know, one talks about a piece of litigation on this podcast that is so straightforward that really without any explanation whatsoever, I think a layperson can grasp it. But this is one of them. The, the point of principle here is a basic point of political principle. Um, those being held to account cannot make the decision on evidential matters that might lead to them not being held to account. Um, so, yeah, straightforward, as we predicted, government has to hand the, the, the text messages over. I hear that there was subsequently a problem accessing Boris Johnson's telephone because, blow me down, he couldn't remember the passcode. Um, but uh, we subsequently hear reports that uh, that issue has been resolved. So uh, presumably these messages, uh, so long as they are in fact intact and available, will now be handed over to the inquiry um, just a few weeks late and with us having spent a frightening amount of money on a pointless piece of high court litigation. Well, thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your excellent insights, as always. Thanks very much, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast, and we will be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.